Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. A new scientific discipline, climate attribution science, is making connections between climate change and recent extreme weather events in the U.S. and around the globe. The science is emerging as a result of advances in computer power used to model weather and the climate, and as scientists have focused their efforts to understand the causes of increasingly frequent heat waves, droughts, and flooding. On today's podcast, two experts will explore attribution science and the extent to which the cause and effect relationship between climate change and weather can in fact be understood. We'll also be looking at how attribution science can be used to trace the contribution to climate change of major greenhouse gas emitters, potentially creating new legal liability for industries and countries. Today's guests are Peter Frumhoff, Chief Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Michael Berger, Executive Director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. Peter and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, Peter, I thought we might start with you. Could you tell us a little bit of your wor- about your work at the Union of Concerned Scientists and how it relates to attribution science? Sure. Thank you, Andy. I'm really delighted to join you. I lead our work on climate science and its relationship to kind of public decisions, societal decisions about climate change. Uh, and in that regard, I'm particularly interested in work, particularly my focus is particularly on the questions of climate science, including attribution science, that can inform uh, societal decisions about responsibility for taking action to address the problem. And in that regard, uh, and we'll get into this later, I've been doing a fair bit of work that it seeks to trace the contribution of emissions from major fossil fuel companies to the changes in climate that we're now seeing. And Michael, what about you? Well, attribution science has always been at the center of climate change law and policy. And here at the Sabin Center, we look at the role that the science plays and should play in international, national, and subnational plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in environmental impact assessment and in litigation. Um, and most, most recently, among, among other projects, uh, I've been working with a colleague here at the Sabin Center and uh, Radley Horton, a scientist at the Earth Institute, on a project look, that looks to map the relationship between the law and science of climate change attribution. Peter, what are the fundamental questions that attribution science tries to answer? Well, to answer that question, Andy, I think it's helpful to break attribution science into two kind of major domains. Uh, the primary one often gets called extreme event attribution. As uh, climate change is occurring, we're seeing a rise in extreme weather events, heat waves, floods, droughts, and so on. Uh, and it used to be the case that scientists were uh, asked about whether climate change was contributing to an extreme weather event that we witnessed in the real world. And and they would say, well, we really don't have anything to say about whether climate change can cause a particular event. Extreme event attribution science emerged over the past 15 years, and now for some kinds of extreme events is able to answer questions with quantitative rigor about the change in frequency or probability of a heat wave, for example. That's one domain. The other domain is increasingly getting called something like source attribution, which relates to what I was describing earlier, which is to say, for the changes in climate that we're seeing, rising sea levels, uh, rising temperatures, and so on, how can we characterize the relative contribution of different sources of emissions, different sources of the cause of the problem, uh, to the changes that we're seeing? And in that context, people have looked at, for example, how the uh, rise in temperature and other changes can be attributed to different nations of the world. That's relevant to the international 
climate negotiations, for example, and the division of responsibilities among nations, increasingly as attention has been given to the responsibility of other entities, particularly fossil fuel companies at the base of the carbon supply chain. Uh, research that I and others have been doing is asking the question about uh, to what extent can we change, identify how uh, ExxonMobil or Chevron or other fossil fuel companies have contributed through their actions to the changes in climate that we're seeing. This is broadly called source attribution. You know, from a, from a legal perspective, attribution science can help answer core questions about causation, the link between emissions, climate change, and the injuries that result uh, from it that can ultimately lead to legal responsibility. The responsibility can take a number of different forms. Most importantly, I think, the form of obligations to reduce emissions or even potentially liability for climate change harms. So attribution science is, is relatively new. What has allowed it to develop, and, and how confident are we today of the cause and effect connections that it makes, Peter? So event attribution science is about 15 uh, years old. There are now something on the order of 250 papers that have been published in this literature. Um, uh, and an established, quite rigorous set of methodologies have been vetted, for example, by the uh, National Academy of Sciences and others, so that we have a shared understanding of particular approaches, particularly methods, so that with quite high confidence for some kinds of extreme weather events, particularly extreme heat uh, and other meteorological changes that we're witnessing, um, we can quantify not whether the event was caused by climate change, that's not the right question, but rather uh, to what extent did climate change uh, make it more likely or make it more severe. And with that question, for some kinds of extreme weather events, particularly extreme heat, flooding, droughts, uh, we can answer that question with quite high confidence. You know, I want to ask you a question related to that. An important point uh, on attribution science is that it's probabilistic, not deterministic. And you just kind of right. did an intro to that. Can you explain this distinction and why it's so important? Sure. Um, uh, uh, well, think of an analogy uh, uh, of a baseball player um, uh, who is using steroid drugs, right? So a baseball player might hit a certain number of home runs per year, uh, with steroid drugs, if he chooses to use them, he might increase that number of of, uh, uh, of home runs. You wouldn't uh, identify uh, that the uh, uh, an individual home run was caused by steroid use. Rather, you would say and be able to say something about the change in the probability or the frequency of of home runs being increased in this case by steroid use. Uh, and you can quantify just how much of that change has resulted. Also true for something like cigarette smoking, right? You can say smoking in broad strokes causes cancer, but it's probabilistic. Some people who smoke cigarettes don't get lung cancer. Some people who get lung cancer don't smoke. Um, so you can't say that, that you smoked those cigarettes for 40 years and that's why you got cancer. You can't make that definite conclusion. Well, but we can conclude in a societally important way that in smoking increases significantly, uh, and in a way that has legal and societal relevance, the risks of lung cancer. And so we can, in that context, for example, hold tobacco companies accountable for their contributions to that problem. So the probabilistic nature of it is a, is a factor in how we ask the question. You don't say, uh, did climate change cause Hurricane Harvey, for example, but you can ask the question, and people have published papers on this, to say how has anthropogenic human-caused climate change changed the severity 
uh, of the impacts that uh, har- the amount of rain, for example, that Hurricane Harvey released on the city of Houston. That is it. So it just defines what are the questions that are answerable, and they're ones that relate to its probabilistic nature. Andy, let me add a point here. Plaintiffs in toxic tort cases have, in some cases, succeeded in relying on probabilistic proof, such as pro- probabilistic estimates of health risk. Um, sometimes that's framed as a more likely than not question. Is it more likely than not that plaintiff's injuries were caused by defendant's action? Uh, other courts have required more um, particularized uh, causation be demonstrated. So in the toxic tort context, which is a close analog, I think, to the legal liability issues surrounding fossil fuel companies uh, in regards to climate change, we have seen plaintiffs succeed in using probabilistic uh, tests, though it's not, it's, not, um, it's not unilateral or it's not uniform from court to court or case to case. So we've seen lots of recent extreme weather from a California heat wave to heavy rain and flooding in the Midwest. Peter, which of these events might be attributed to climate warming? In the case of, well, you know, we're seeing heat waves now in California, um, but also extreme heat over 120 degrees Fahrenheit in large swaths of India, other parts of the northern hemisphere as well. Um, uh, in order to attribute climate change in a scientifically rigorous way, we need to do a body of research that quantifies the contribution of human emissions to the changes that we're seeing. That work hasn't been done yet uh, for the uh, heat waves that are currently happening, and it hasn't been done for the extreme flooding in the Midwest. So we can't give you a quantitative answer to that question. But we can say, for example, that with the flooding in the Midwest, um, a, a contributing factor is almost certainly the increase in precipitation uh, that we're seeing as a result of climate change that's being caused by, for example, the warmer ocean waters in the Gulf of Mexico that allow the atmosphere that, that, uh, uh, to pick up more moisture and dump it on the Midwest. That's a trajectory of change that we're seeing uh, that is contributing, with very little doubt, to the increased flooding in the Midwest. But the Flooding has many factors, many human-caused factors as well, where we build levees, for example, where we sustain them, uh, uh, how we manage precipitation. And the quantitative analysis that event attribution research would do, to my knowledge, has not been done for these events. So we can answer the question in general terms, but not quantitatively specifically. Mm -hmm. I I think I'll take a a slightly different tact on it, which is that um, from a legal perspective, uh, and from an adaptation perspective, really, uh, it's, it may be less important whether these events are caused by climate change um, and who is responsible for climate change, because um, we know these risks are increasing, that the events are more frequent, uh, and that the only reasonable policy is, is to adapt um, to, to, to these impacts. It's interesting to look at some of the post-disaster litigation that we've been seeing recently uh, around the wildfires in California and the bankruptcy proceeding around Pacific Gas and Electric uh, and the litigation resulting from Hurricane Harvey around the release of floodwaters there. Uh, Climate change is not emerging as a primary issue or as a major issue in those particular cases. Uh, Risk is. Understanding the risk um, and, and adapting appropriately to it. 
and the failure to do that can lead to legal liability in and of itself. So, Michael, in Germany, there's an effort underway to develop a rapid attribution service that would almost immediately make the connection where one exists between extreme weather and climate change. What purpose might this serve? Well, this is not going to be particularly important in courtrooms. Um, It may be useful to prospective plaintiffs and their lawyers considering whether to bring suit in the immediate aftermath of of a disaster uh, or a climate-related extreme event. But ultimately, it's the science itself uh, and not its rapidity that will matter for judges and juries. As a communications tool, uh, it's, I, I think it's a high-impact uh, communications tool. Uh, it does generate some blowback, and it does raise some possible questions around methodologies. Um, but uh, for the most part, when we see these extreme events, people want to know how much of this is climate change responsible for. And in that respect, these rapid uh, attribution studies provide some first answers to that question. Yeah, let me add a point there, Andy, if I may. Um, I agree with what Michael just said. I just wanted to emphasize that as the um, science and methodologies of attribution, extreme event attribution, mature, um, the capacity to do uh, rigorous, rapid response attribution studies increases. We're not entirely there yet, but... Um, you know, the peer review process that's so important for science uh, can be established for the methodology uh, and, and then applied in particular cases in a more rapid form, um, reducing the need in order to inform public understanding, as Michael was highlighting, of needing to wait for all of the um, contingencies and of timing related to peer-reviewed science uh, to be able to put information out relatively rapidly to inform public dialogue at a moment in which people are paying attention in order to not only raise awareness about climate change, but to help uh, encourage conversations that relate to preparations for extreme weather events uh, that are worsening as a result of climate change in some cases, and that uh, can often happen motivated by an event, for better or worse, than by a, a longer-term conversation informed by subsequent research. So that, that ability, Peter, to draw the direct connection, is that going to be important in, in preparing for future extreme weather events? I think it's going to be important for strengthening the capacity of constituencies and a variety of communities to have conversations about climate change in real time uh, uh, so that it doesn't get dismissed or overstated, uh, but that there's science it, it, that gets taken up in the media uh, and, and appropriately used to inform dialogues in real time in the context of the aftermath of an extreme event where people are truly paying attention to how do we both address the problem currently, but also how do we prepare uh, for the next time this might come around. So as you both have mentioned, attribution science might be used to draw cause and effect connections between climate change and the activities that are driving it. And this is uh, important because uh, attribution science might be used to inform legal liability for climate damages, again, as we've been talking about. And to this point, Peter, you co-authored a paper that traced two-thirds of total historic industrial greenhouse gas emissions to 90 companies, primarily in the fossil fuel industry. Can you talk about the key findings and connections drawn from that research? Yeah, thanks, Andy. So the research you just mentioned was actually published by my colleague, Richard Heady, um, who published, uh, after an arduous number of years of painstaking research, a database that quantified uh, just how much coal, oil, and natural gas had been extracted 
and marketed by individual fossil energy companies every year, dating back to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. He found that about two-thirds of the industrialist sourced emissions of carbon dioxide and methane, the two primary greenhouse gases, uh, can be traced to these 90 companies. What I did, working with uh, Dr. Heady and others, was to draw uh, that database into uh, climate models in order to quantify how much of the change in global climate, particularly sea level rise, global average temperature, we're now about to uh, uh, produce work looking at ocean acidification, uh, can be traced to the emissions from the products of ExxonMobil, Chevron, and other major fossil fuel companies. Again, this is intended uh, to inform dialogue, including but not limited to, I want to say, legal uh, dialogue about uh, uh, about responsibility of companies. Science it doesn't determine responsibility. It doesn't. It, it clearly can be, though, a, 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 a contribution to conversations and legal uh, and societal decisions about responsibility. There are lawsuits that are now being taken up that cite this research in a variety of jurisdictions in the U.S. Uh, seeking damages uh, that I know Michael might speak to. But, of course, there are other ways, whether it be through divestment campaigns or uh, investment decisions by shareholders uh, or public policies more broadly, that questions of company responsibility uh, for the damages that their products uh, have contributed to um, can be taken up. And so it's our hope and our intent to ensure that this kind of science, with other pieces of information informing discussions as well, uh, is useful to you know the pressing decision about who takes responsibility for the damages we're now seeing. Yeah, Michael, I'd like to ask you a question kind of related to another point that that same paper that, that Peter was just talking about pointed out, and that was that uh, the, the paper found that the bulk of emissions from from this group of 90 companies are actually post-1986 when climate impacts were already fairly well, well understood. And this has come out recently over the last couple of years in, in re- revelations related to some of the oil companies and the press, et cetera. Given that, and given that knowledge that there is a link between emissions, or there has been a link be, between emissions and, and climate change for quite some time, um, what, are the, what are the possible legal implications that come out of this in, in, in a very direct sense? So I'll take, I'll take a quick step backwards before coming directly to that, to that question. In thinking broadly about the, the legal implications of attribution science, you can look at detection and attribution science writ large, um, which can tie global phenomena like sea level rise, global temperature increases, ocean acidification directly to climate change. And some of the lawsuits that we're seeing are focusing on ocean warming and sea level rise uh, and not on extreme events. Um, extreme event attribution uh, can be can relate specific harms from extreme events to climate change and therefore create the conditions. Both of these really create the conditions for assigning blame, right? These, these, these climatic changes, temperatures, sea level rise, increasing intensity and frequency of extreme events, particular extreme events, these aren't just natural disasters anymore. These are, these are disasters that are caused by human activity. And that's where the source attribution comes in. That's where the, the, the studies that Peter was just talking about sort of come in. And what these do is they, they identify bad actors. They put people on the hook or they put companies potentially on the hook for, for these injuries that are resulting. Um, the 1986 um, not line in the sand, um, it, it is important because 
you know, 30 years ago, we were at a point when uh, if we had started to take action as a global society to address climate change, things would be a lot different now. Uh, and we would be on a much firmer course towards limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees uh, or potentially even lower. Um, but instead, we're on a business-as-usual trajectory towards catastrophe. Um, and the fact that these companies knowingly engaged in these activities and that they undertook what was clearly a coordinated disinformation campaign to obscure public understanding uh, should weigh heavily in favor of you know, holding, them to a, holding them to account. Now, in the courtroom, uh, the fact that they knowingly did these things um, does matter, whether it'll be enough to overcome all the legal obstacles um, standing between this moment and legal liability remains to be seen. Well, I want to ask another question on that. Does attribution science serve in a sense, does it provide legal evidence that wasn't there before? Yes, in a, in a sense it does. I mean, ultimately, if, if uh, plaintiffs in the lawsuits that cities, counties, um, uh, professional associations have filed against fossil fuel companies here in the United States, as Peter mentioned, they, they do cite to um, Rikidi's study um, and, to, and to Peter's study um, to, uh, you know, to make the connection between the activities these companies engaged in and the, and the injuries that they're complaining about. Um, it's not quite evidence yet because they're not in an evidentiary phase. But if these cases do move to trial and they do move to an evidentiary phase, then um, I expect that these studies and other ones will will come forward and that there will ultimately be something of a battle of the experts uh, between the plaintiff's experts and the defendant's experts about what are the best methodologies, what are the, uh, uh, how much blame really can be assigned to, to these particular defendants, and so forth and so on. So it sounds like we're going to see more of this in, in legal circles going forward, it sounds like. Yes, we're certainly not at the at the end of the road uh, in these lawsuits. The, the, there are more than a dozen lawsuits that have been filed just in the United States, uh, and there are lawsuits that have been filed internationally as well. Um, and we're at an early stage in all of those cases, I would say. Michael, you co-authored a report on climate change litigation for the United Nations Environment Program. I think it was in 2017. Uh, and that report called climate change a super wicked policy problem. And, and you wrote that one of the reasons this is so is that no institution, and this is a quote, no institution has legal jurisdiction and authority aligned with the scope of the problem. Can you tell us about this challenge and why it potentially complicates litigation relating to climate change? Well, ultimately, the causes of climate change are global. Um, and there is no global government. Um, there is the United Nations, of course, um, and there is the International Court of Justice. But these entities don't um, have sovereign authority over, over individual nations. Um, <clears throat> so countries can be subject to the jurisdiction of the ICJ, if they so choose, uh, in particular cases. Um, but one suspects that if the United States were sued about climate change at the ICJ, that they would, that they would not agree to that. Um, so there is no court and there is no government that is authorized um, or empowered to fully hold domain over all of the sources of climate change. And the Paris Agreement uh, reflects that reality in, in, in the way that it calls for a bottom-up appro- approach to national commitments to a, uh, a 
dealing with climate change. Um, what does this all mean for litigation? Without question, the, the, the fact that climate change is caused by all of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions from around the world poses both a conceptual block um, and potentially legal block to plaintiffs seeking to have their claims heard in court. Um, you know, I think that there are, it's an issue that's, that's being worked out frequently in the courtrooms right now, whether the sheer number of actors involved, the sheer number of um, contributors to the climate change problem and the multi-jurisdictional, uh, you know, transnational, global nature of the problem means that courts have a much more limited role. Um, at this point, again, I would say that we're, we're still in an early stage, um, and the courts have not firmly settled on exactly what kind of limits the global nature of climate change poses for courts. Peter, let me ask you a, a question related to that. Uh, does the Paris Climate Accord, in a sense, provide a benchmark of which, uh, against which to judge a country's climate performance and then, by extension, set the stage for citizenry, for example, to say uh, we are not uh, working adequately towards our uh, mitigation goals, and then thus kind of set a foundation upon which to to litigate. I mean, I know this is a question maybe for Michael, but I just wanted to get your opinion on this one as well. Well, let me ask. Let me answer the question through a science lens, uh, and perhaps Michael can then speak to his legal lens. There are certainly legal proceedings that have been moving forward in various countries. Um, building off the Paris Agreement commitments to seek to hold uh, nations accountable for not meeting their contributions yet, for example, to the uh, to the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, and there are also provisions, nascent provisions in the Paris Agreement that are difficult to uh, formalize into meaningful action around uh, loss and damage. That is to say, how do we account for and identify responsible parties for paying for the cost of climate change, particularly in the most climate-vulnerable uh, nations um, uh, where climate change is being uh, uh, having the greatest harm, where the capacity for adaptation uh, and addition for mitigation is, is more limited. Um, but I just wanted to say that uh, one of my hopes for the future of attribution science, of both the extreme event version and the source attribution work that we've been talking about, uh, is that it will move from a domain in which the decisions over what studies to do in what locations um, are currently driven primarily by scientists interested in scientific questions, um, and therefore, because of where most scientists are, most of the research is in the United States or Western Europe. Um, there are very few attribution science studies uh, with a focus on the developing world. Uh, and there is, at least in my conversations with colleagues in developing countries who are facing uh, serious climate risks, a real interest, a pent-up demand for an opportunity for science to inform an understanding of how both climate change is contributing to extreme events, whether it be the worsening impacts of tropical cyclones or other events, uh, sea level rise, um, uh, but also to understand how they can understand the contribution of different sources, for example, fossil fuel companies, uh, to the changes and impacts and vulnerabilities that they face. And so I think there needs to be a, a movement in attribution science from something that is broadly, how shall we call this, supply-driven by scientists 
uh, to more demand-driven by um, constituencies, uh, including in the legal sphere, but also nations and communities who are interested in understanding how to prepare for changes but don't have access to science to inform those, those conversations in their nations, in their communities, because science is not set up in a process that enables that. And so that's a, that, will, that doesn't really answer the question about the Paris Agreement per se, but it is a direction that we need to go in order for uh, this conversation about science informing questions of responsibility uh, around climate change to move out of what is primarily an industrialized country, U.S. and Western European-centric frame, to one that is more global. Mike, what's the kind of the more legal side on this one? So I guess the, there are a few things. Um, on, on loss and damage, you know, loss and damage has been a sticking point in climate negotiations since they began. Um, and the, the possibility of a, um, for instance, a small island state um, going to court to seek compensation for the, the damages that they're that that country is suffering as a result of climate change has long been there, the, the idea, and it's been discussed at various points. Um, but we still haven't seen it. That's not to say we won't see it. Um, and, and if we do uh, see a lawsuit filed in some court or another um, seeking compensation from the United States, the European Union, Japan, China, Russia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, others, um, you know, then, then attribution science will absolutely be a key part of that case. Um, as far as the, the Paris Agreement goes, um, you know, what the Paris Agreement means outside of the United States is different than what it means inside the United States. Um, even setting aside uh, the big, you know, hullabaloo around Trump's announced withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, um, Courts may be inclined to interpret the Paris Agreement as an executive agreement rather than as a treaty, and therefore having less uh, legal stature within the United States. Outside the U.S., we have already seen plaintiffs and petitioners, um, citizen groups and environmental groups, um, and individual citizens going to court uh, to challenge the ambition of their national governments and claiming, in essence, that what their governments have pledged to do is simply not enough because it's not consistent with the temperature limitation goals of the Paris Agreement. And in uh, a couple of instances, we have seen courts explicitly refer to the Paris Agreement as the appropriate benchmark in cases in Colombia and Australia, um, uh, among others. So um, absolutely, outside the United States, the Paris Agreement um, has, is being used by litigants to, as a benchmark, and courts are referring to it as a benchmark, at least in some cases. So, so taking um, all that and looking forward then, so how might attribution science specifically impact decision-making among policymakers and the business communities, again, going forward? Attribution science helps us understand the nature of current and future climate-related risk and its causes. It can, should, and ultimately it must inform efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at every level, the international, the national, the subnational, and the corporate, and to adapt to the profound transformations to our environment that are already underway. Michael, so should we be prepared for an onslaught of efforts to discredit attribution science as it could mean more legal liability for government, industry, etc.? Climate science is already been litigated in the courts for, for years. Um, and no court has 
adopted anything like a denier stance in regards to the basic elements of climate science. And, and that's true of detection and attribution science um, writ large. Um, so, no, I don't expect there to be a wholesale effort to discredit attribution science, um, even, even in regards to extreme event attribution. I do expect that uh, if cases move forward to trial, that there will be competing narratives um, and that there will be competing evidence and that fossil fuel companies and governments uh, will bring forward their own experts to um, both lower the, you know, on the source attribution side to reduce the quantity of emissions that they can be held accountable for, uh, and on the extreme event attribution side, um, to raise questions about the certainty of the studies, the studies and the confidence levels of the science, uh, and so sort of deflect blame from themselves or accountability. Uh, but in that respect, as I said before, I think that we'll be looking at something that's much more like a battle of the experts than a wholesale effort to discredit the nature of the science. Andy, I want to add to that, if I may. Um, with respect to the source attribution work that I've been doing together with several colleagues to characterize the contribution of emissions traced to, from fossil fuel companies to changes in climate, this work has been out and published now for several years, and I've, I've uh, not seen any efforts to discredit the fundamental methodologies. But we are beginning to see um, from some of the fossil fuel companies uh, language about responsibility for emissions that can be seen as discrediting the outcomes or the uh, conclusions of these studies. So, for example, we're seeing some language from companies where they are talking about responsibility for emissions on the part of the companies being restricted to emissions associated with the extraction ref and refining of their products. Um, at referring to the emissions from their marketed products, that is to say the coal oil and natural gas that they sell, as, and I'll put this in air quotes, customer emissions. That is, you know, so our analyses treat emissions uh, uh, across the whole supply chain from fossil fuel companies as allocatable to the companies themselves, that they're responsible for, the, um, for, for those emissions. And that, that pushback or that language about customer emissions I think can be reasonably interpreted as an as a intent to shift the narrative uh, uh, so that they would be limited to what is essentially one-tenth of the uh, total emissions associated with, uh, with, with, the, with the refining uh, and marketing of their products. Obviously, that this, is a, this is not a scientific question. It's an ethical and uh, societal question about who takes responsibility, who's held responsible for emissions across the supply chain. I would argue that... Um, uh, it's a, there's a strong case that companies should be held responsible for the emissions of the products that they marketed while knowing, since the mid-1980s, as you highlighted, uh, uh, of the climate risks of their products. Um, but again, I think this is something that should these cases come to court, we might see a ramp-up of that sort of narrative. Well, Michael and Peter, let me ask you one final question here related to what we've just been talking about, and that's it. Investors are increasingly demanding disclosure and transparency on, on corporate risk uh, stemming from climate change. Are investors taking note of attribution science as they evaluate the risks they see specifically related to any, any given company? So, absolutely. Um, investors, insurers, uh, banks, um, 
the financial sector is seeking to better understand the the risk that climate change poses to companies in multiple respects, um, including the physical risks that climate change poses to operations and supply chains, the uh, regulatory risk that um, the possibility of more stringent regulations might pose to uh, a company's performance and viability, uh, and legal risk, liability risk, the, the, the risk that um, companies may be held responsible um, for payment of damages or compensation for the impacts of climate change. I, I agree with that. I would just add, if I may, Andy, that um, uh, we're at a fairly early stage with respect to shareholders uh, uh, holding companies, in this case fossil fuel companies, accountable for climate risks. There have been a number of shareholder resolutions, some that have surprisingly passed, including at ExxonMobil, over the past couple of years, requiring companies to issue uh, two-degree reports, reports identifying how they will align their business model with the uh, temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. Uh, companies have subsequently produced reports, several of them now, um, uh, intending to respond to those shareholder uh, expectations. Uh, and what we've been seeing in the kind of initial rollout of such reports is that um, companies are often talking about uh, a two-degree report, um, but only, again, referring to their uh, uh, emissions associated with the uh, extraction, refining of their products, they never actually get to the point of saying how will their emissions get to net zero consistent with the uh, Paris Agreement goals. Uh, I think there's some work to be done uh, as shareholders move from uh, demanding that companies uh, respond to climate risks to having good scientific information available to them uh, so that they can reasonably evaluate whether companies as they issue such reports are actually Aligning their business models coherently and consistently with the with the with, with with the Paris agreements and with the climate risks that they now, unlike several years ago when they were denying climate change, um, uh, uh, claim to support. And so there's a there's a disconnect between the goals uh, and, and the reality of whether companies are responding in a way consistent with those goals. And I think that's a space where there'll be a lot of active work, including uh, informed by science so that fossil fuel companies, by their shareholders, by their investors, um, are increasingly held responsible for um, moving from a business model that essentially moves us onto a three- to four-degree world to one that might, uh, if we act swiftly, align with a two-degree world. Peter and Michael, thanks very much for talking. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure. Thank you. Today's guests have been Peter Frumhoff, Chief Climate Scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Michael Berger, Executive Director at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. This episode of Energy Policy Now, as well as three years of our archives, are available on the Climate Center's website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And for new research blogs and events from the Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 